This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Pints and Perspectives. I'm still enjoying the day with my good friend and mentor, Ben Blackwell. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying this conversation. I'm very grateful for Ben to be here. It has been as formative for me and uh, helping fill the gap for me in some areas about the kingdom of God as I hope it is for you. So yeah. thanks for being here again. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Well, I will say we are back to the true nature of Pints and Perspectives. We have finally got far enough in the day that we do have beers. Uh, I am currently drinking a West Coast IPA from Offshoot Beer Company that I think is really good. And I don't remember what Ben ended up with. It is a seasonal release, uh, a lager beer from Real L Brewing Company. So Yeah, it says uh, Hellas, uh, if it's German, since it says lager beer in German there, then I'm going to pronounce it Hellas, not yep, Hells, yep. right? So yeah, it's good so far. So Good deal. Well, cheers, man. Thanks for yep. being here. It's a pleasure. So it's always uh, good to... Uh, we talk about a community restoration. There's something about eating and drinking with others. So Absolutely. You know, I, we, we talk about it a lot in the introduction. But the whole idea here was when you start talking about theology in a way that crosses boundaries, and for most people that becomes politically aligned, right? So much in America is our political alignments, uh, and we kind of translate that over to our religion and theology, and so for us, we wanted to just kind of have it like a, a, a tap room conversation. Like it's yep. just over a yep. beer. We're having good conversation and uh, it fits with our values of being relational. So what's interesting, I was talking about this the other day with somebody uh, and it dawned on me. It's like we're at the most ecumenical point in history. Like, yeah, it's always been, uh, you know, the people that were most uh, of danger to the Anabaptists in the 16th century. We're, we're not the Catholics. It was other Protestants. Right. <laughs> the, the Anabaptist. Um, and I'm, I fit within that tradition broadly. And so it's like, uh, you know, you view difference of opinion as a cancer, particularly yeah. religious opinion. Right. And so of course the same thing happened with Catholic Protestant stuff as well on both sides. And, but we live in a point now to where people can talk rationally and, yeah. And, and explore the scriptures together to see where the differences lie. You know, we talk, one, one of the things between Catholic and Protestant is just this fundamental premise of what's the lens on which you read the Bible. And for Catholics, it's always from the Gospels. And for most Protestants, it's from Paul. through Paul. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you think about justification for Protestants, it's Romans 4. And justification in that sense, well, for a Catholic position, it's Matthew 6, right. you know, of righteousness. So Jesus' righteousness, you know, and so it's like there are good and bad ways to, you know, think about that. But it, we have the place for open dialogue without vitriol or like emotional, yeah. you know, and it's like, it, it hit me that we actually have learned some skills in ecumenical dialogue that we as the church need to bring to the political sphere as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, in yeah. that sense. Now part, I think it has to do with the, the shift here is why can there be escal or this ecumenical dialogue 
that doesn't work in the political sphere is because we actually don't think religion matters for daily life anymore. Oh yeah. And since it doesn't matter, then I, I can talk to you about, you know, I can talk to you about black holes and we can never get in a fight. Cause I don't think black holes affect me at all, you know? And so most yeah. people have segregated religion off to this private, so, you know, sphere of life that doesn't have to do with anything. Whereas I think my flourishing, the way that I succeed yeah. in life is tied directly to whether the political um, position. And so we've actually lost what I would say is a sense of eschatology. We've lost this sense that the, the overarching, you know, the future is actually driven by Christ and the work of the spirit and the world and not by, um, you know, temporal or, you know, this worldly political yeah. power. And so we've, we've given up true power, the power of the kingdom of God for political power. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's, um, you know, and maybe this is your mentorship in my life coming to fruition, but this is why we at Wellhouse Church have Let's Talk. Okay. Because it's like, it is, what does it mean for you to be a Christian Monday through Saturday? I mean, your Christian life, your uh, spiritual reality of the spirit living in you as an embodiment of the kingdom of God yeah. shouldn't be just on the, the one hour or two hour a week that you're in church. Mm. It should be a reality through which you view and interact with the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that, yeah, plays out because the whole thing is like, as you know, the kingdom is about having creation run in the way that God intended it to be. Right. So sin and brokenness is not inherent to the physical world. So that's back to your Marcionite or Gnostic right. kind of yeah. thing is they think and brokenness is inherent to this physical world. And so when things run well, whether that be through what appears miraculous, you know, healing or, you know, the gospel coming and, um, you know, people having this, uh, obvious repentance or right. if it work, if, if the world works well, in ways that look very natural. Yeah. That's still God at work doing these things. Um, Catherine Tanner is a um, contemporary theologian, uh, Episcopal, Episcopalian, I believe. And she has a book called Christ the Key. And so mostly about Christology, but her concluding chapter in that book is about pneumatology okay. and the spirit. And it's very interesting. She takes the Puritans and she uses them as this test case of how do you measure the work of the spirit? Is it through the obvious, immediate, uh, inward kind of ex experience of God's uh, transformation? Or is it God, the slow, the hidden work of the spirit through institutions? Okay. And it's a very interesting thing because as evangelicals, uh, we tend to value the immediate, the the visible work of the spirit. And yet, um, and this, you know, Puritans kind of help ground some of our, um, Protestant evangelical tradition is like, no, they're the slow, the hidden work of the spirit is still as much a work of the spirit. And, and I, I've really been driven to this by a friend of mine, Bert Wagner, who's my mentor at the church I'm at now. He used to be the national director of the vineyard, uh, USA denomination took over after John Wimber, past, but I've never met anybody who is 
constantly looking for the spirit mm. spirits work again in the daily and the mundane as well as the you know super mundane and the supernatural and so what this does is it plays into this question of are we only expecting God to work for that one or two hours we do church things or is God at work in the people that, you know, our families or our bosses or our work. And so in the sense that our work provides good and value to others, it's part of, um, you know, God's sovereignty over the world to bring flourishing to other people through the work we do. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good point about the Puritans because, you know, the Puritan, um, model for conflict resolution is used worldwide. I mean, it's used in corporate America. It's used in the church. I mean, that's kind of what they're known for in the okay. secular world is their model for conflict resolution. Um, so but for me. them, it's all based on the spirit. Hmm. It's a, it's a four part model for how you resolve conflict amongst people. Okay. And it's based on the spirit, but we've taken that and taken it to an institutional level because I think of this very premise that the spirit can be at work in the mundane things. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, there's this whole question of the sacred secular divide and it's a hard one. I mean, I, I so uh, Colin and I were talking about the difference between a more Anabaptist vision where the church is to be separate and pure from the world versus a uh, Kuyperian, uh, Abraham Kuyper is of, of the church as kind of a leading out a model that helps uh, pull the world towards a, a Christian vision of, of flourishing. And um, it seems to me that both of these have a place in this sense that if we expect the church to have a strong position in the world such that we're running the world, I, I think, and that's a lot of times Christian political perspectives on the right and the left have the idea that we need to recreate the world and the church's image. And, and I think it's a unhealthy expectation of what we can achieve that way. But at the same time, there, the Anabaptist vision that is totally separate is also, I think, an, um, not healthy in that sense either. And so it, it, but both of those, you know, I mean, it's like, how do you fit the sacred secular? I, I am more and more convinced of the idea of creation as God's and the fullness thereof. And so we, we're, it's not like we have to go somewhere separate or bracket ourselves right. off, but at the same time also having, you know, um, realistic expectations about, you know, the kingdom of Satan is quite active in these places. Yeah. I think, um, uh, another mentor of mine, and I know he's a dear friend of yours is Dr. David Capes, who's now the senior research fellow at the Lanier theological library and adjunct professor at Baylor. Um, and he, he uses a great analogy or illustration to help, um, kind of formulate this for us. He says that when his kids were young, they would go on road trips. And back in the day, it, we would do this, go on road trips. And it's not uncommon for young children to get car sick. Mm. And so they had a bowl that they kept in their car and it was called the vomit bowl. <laughs> it was consecrated. It was set apart for this purpose of uh, being the vomit bowl, the thing that the kids could vomit in if they got car sick. Now with that, it exists in the world. It's utilized. It's known. It has its place in the world. But yet it is set apart because it would be unthinkable 
for them to have friends or family come over for dinner and be one bowl short of a place setting mm. and go get it. And no matter how many times you wash it, it's been set apart for something that it's unthinkable to use it for something else. Mm. It is this idea that we can be set apart for a purpose and that there are things that we would never do uh, because of our relationship to the kingdom of God mm. and things that we would endure in part because of the kingdom of God that we would never use, that we would never go into another area, but yet we're still a part of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. That's helpful. Yeah. And so it, it just is this tension, you know, and I think this is the difficult, you know, most theology is, and the best theology is always inhabiting the tension, you know, and it's not resolving the tension. We talk about it on here, and this is from Randy Hatchett. If you ever resolve the tension, you've probably fallen into heresy. Yeah, yeah. And so we constantly talk about how we're wrestling with the tensions. Um, we're wrestling with the tensions of God's providence versus free will. We're wrestling with the tensions of the kingdom of God versus this present evil age. We're always wrestling in the tensions. And if you ever think you've resolved the tension— you might be in heresy because the tensions are there to wrestle with because in the words of C.S. Lewis, we are a line trying to explain a cube. Yeah. It is an <laughs> infinite God yeah. trying to be explained by finite people. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful. And so that's the, the tension we have about the church, the purity of the church and yet the engagement of the church in the world, right. Is always a hard one. I, I think back to first Corinthians, um, really five to 10 is really that tension. Paul, yeah. Paul wants the, the community to have a really strong purity ethic and drive. And so in that sense of, he says, look, if this guy's sleeping with his mother-in-law, like you can't have that inside yeah. the church. Now uh, he also doesn't tell them to kick out the people going to prostitutes. So it's, it's always right. a fine line of where, where yeah. that, you know, I, I think the ethic that he, that gives there is like, Hey, if, if the pagans think this is immoral, then you cannot have him. Right. You know, absolutely. If, if you're, even if, the pagans don't do this, yeah. you definitely can't have this. Yeah. So it's, uh, but he also is like, look, there's this, uh, meat offered to idols. It's, you know, we think it's actually demonic even like these are not just idols. They're yeah. actually demons behind this, but that doesn't mean that you can't participate in it. And right. so it's like, you have these really firm boundaries about letting evil in, but that doesn't limit the church from going outside to engage uh, those that are outside the church. And so right. it's a, it's a really interesting tension to inhabit between, you know, the both and there. And well, so darkness never overtakes light unless light burns out. Mm. Mm. I mean, just think about in the metaphor, yeah. unless the fire no longer has fuel, yeah. darkness yeah. never overtakes it. Yeah. That's the, and I guess it's like the coal, you know, will burn out on its own so quickly, but if it's in the middle of the, the fire, then it'll keep burning there, you know? And so provide light outside the fire too, then. Right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you know, it's, it is this weird kind of tension, but it's also a beautiful tension um, because it, the kingdom of God is a present reality of restoration and we live in a broken world. Yeah. And so if we go into this isolated state where the kingdom of God exists in an exclusive community, how is the kingdom of God realized in brokenness? Yeah. Um, 
we could say that it's continually realized in the uh, perpetual restoration of the people in the community. But I think John 3.16 is pretty clear that it's restoration of the world. Um, and we, we don't do a good job of this. We talk about this some on, on Let's Talk, and we want to talk about it more. But God seems to be unique. When you do a true biblical reading, God seems to be uniquely concerned with creation and the land itself. Right? You think about the people of Israel. There's a promised land. Like there's a place that is for the inhabited people. Now we have Pentecost where the gospel and the kingdom of God is realized in Gentile and Jew. And there's a sending out Jerusalem, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Yep. Well, now we've inhabited the kingdom of God is present in all elements of the earth. So the land is unique, should be a unique concern of the people of God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I um, am right there with you. We're thinking about getting, or we're in the process of getting solar panels in our house. To, oh, are you? Okay, yeah. <laughs> trying to do, you know, do our one part in that. And I think that's part of the thing. It's like I see that as a Christian action. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, now, economically, it actually is economically viable, so it's not even like I'm sacrificing in that. But at the same time, when we sin, I mean, they sinned in a physical manner, right? I mean, that's the whole thing in the Garden of Eden is that they ate uh, something physically, and yet that physical action not only corrupted their soul, it actually corrupted the rest of the world. Yeah. And so there's the, I think, um, you know, I, I think of kind of a avatar uh, model here, you know, it's not such that, you know, where there's this world soul and, you know, this overt connection that way. If we're not pantheist. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. That's a good, yeah, good, uh, good term to put on that. But there's some kind of spiritual connection there, right? Is that when we sin, it actually, you know, corrupts the physical world. And so in the same way then that I would see holiness as contagious as well, too. You know, that as we have these holy actions, that it, it matters in the way that we engage the land and the world. And, and, and where this plays out, I think, for people is that, you know, 99% of our time is spent outside the church, right? In right, what yeah. we might consider kind of secular space, I, I don't think we should. It's all God's world, right? Um, 168 hours in a week and you spend one of them at church. Yeah. You know? And so in that sense of like, are we ignoring God for 99% of our time? And it's actually, no, it's living in the fullness of wholeness in relation to, in these communities and the the land and the place that we live. Um, not only for our own flourishing, but the, for the flourishing of the rest of the world. Well, I think, uh, it, it, it really is hard because, America is the land of the American dream. It's the land of opportunity. Mm. So we don't have solar panels on our house, but we truly believe in taking care of the land and taking care of God's creation and those kinds of things. And so we pay extra for 100% renewable resources Mm. for the energy. Now we, we understand we're not naive that, that we get that energy. It just goes into the grid, but we're doing our part. But it, it actually is an element of suffering because it's not economically viable to do that. It is cheaper to use the cheaper energy than to pay the extra fees yeah. for the 100% renewable. Yeah. 
And I think that is truly an element of the kingdom of God. And that Mark does a really good job of showing us this in those kind of middle chapters of his gospel. Yeah. So that, uh, I wonder if we should, uh, uh, do that as a separate episode now. So I don't know if you want nah, to keep going. Nah, we'll just keep going. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, see, I this go, is barroom conversation, man. I could go man. on for a, a long time about the middle of Mark. So before we get there, though, let me, let me lay out one quick thing about the Sermon on the Mount because I think it sets up the general kind of pr- idea here, and then it'll explain even further with Mark. Um but so that's even, starting in Matthew five. Yeah, Matthew five. But let me let me go back to I talked about the Catholics versus Protestants, right? And so Catholics have this vision of um, the Gospels in a way that some Protestants don't. And one of the important things in the Reformation was this idea that there shouldn't be a two tier spirituality. So like in the so Catholic, like a duality. Well, no, a two tier. So in the sense of like monks and priests. Oh, a spiritual I, and elite and yeah, like the and lady then the, and then the yeah. common people. And so one of the main things about the reformation was that no, the regular people are called to the same kind of standards as priests or, or leaders in the church. And so, um, and one of the things then in the reformation was, uh, an honoring of what we might call ordinary flourishing. Okay. So family yeah. work, Right. So the Protestant work ethic, all these kind of things of seeing, look, God is working in these common spheres. But one of the things that we didn't do so well in the Reformation is to ignore uh, what Charles Taylor calls extraordinary flourishing. So some of these things of the virtues, instead of the virtues of embrace, so feasting, uh, family, work, uh, we have minimized what I would call the virtues of renunciation. So. Mm of fasting, of solitude, of poverty. And these were the things that were especially uh, valued among priests and monks in the Catholic church. And so one of the things as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes when we talk about the kingdom, it's not just about ordinary flourishing. So healing and restoration in the way that we think it is, it's also about extraordinary flourishing or yeah. seeking the way of finding transcendence. So not being captured just by these eminent or this worldly goods, but giving up and sacrificing those goods in order to experience God's kingdom. And so we see this in Matthew five and six, um, you know, Jesus talks about his values of the sermon on the Mount for his people Um and particularly in chapter six, we have this idea of he talks about being uh, generous, so giving to the needy, uh, devoting yourself to prayer, and then also fasting. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so these are kind of classic uh, exaltation of extraordinary flourishing. So instead of feasting, you're fasting. Instead of accumulating blessing and wealth. Yeah you're being open and giving away and the same time with prayer, instead of using it on your own time and interest, you're devoting yourself to God's things. And so in, in the end of that, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and uh, animals destroy it. These break in, but store up treasures in heaven. And so again, it's that whole idea of that there are values more than just the ones we see here on earth. And he goes into this idea of, um, worry and anxiety 
that happens when we try to accumulate these things, because if you set your, your sights on things that are ultimately um, corrupted or corruptible, right? The temporal things, they're always going to break. So as a house owner now, uh, I, I know that something is constantly going to break around my house. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. And we, we bought a, a new build, like one of the cookie cutter neighborhood homes, the master plan communities. And we've lived in this house for, um, four years working on five countless things have broken and it was brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Countless things. Yeah. So if there's anything, you know, AC, like if you, my house is a little bit older, a couple of decades, so it's a roof, it's an AC system, it's the fence, it's the, you know, there's always something. So if you're hoping for this unstable thing to provide you stability, stability, yeah. it's always going to be a failing, you know, and so it's going to create that internal mental instability. And so do you just, think this is why, because of these kind of, iconic moments in the teachings of Jesus that we have the early church expressing themselves in the common purse and these kind of Anabaptist type communities in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Yeah. I mean, I think it's that sense of like, we're in this together. And so we're willing to sacrifice Yeah, and the, and it, and it's all after flourishing, right? So right. it's the, the extraordinary flourishing also helps re reinforce ordinary flourishing as well. So yeah, you may go without, but that means that somebody else does get to go with, you know, right. in that sense. And so it's a communal sense there. And um, like the whole idea of prayer, sometimes we think it's just, well, I'm losing out here. But the whole idea is like that we have this as uh, this kingdom of priests, we have a, a vocation of praying for other people Yeah. Um, in that sense. And so. Uh, but at the at the heart of this whole idea of not worrying, of not having this anxiety, Jesus gives us this command, seek first his kingdom, mm -hmm. God's kingdom, and God's righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. And so the whole idea is that, that what leads to not worrying is having the open hand in giving. It's it's by having the open hand in prayer that with your time and also fasting because you're you're setting those things up. And so this sets a general kind of both end in the kingdom, right? We seek ordinary flourishing. We invest in family, right? Right. We invest in work um, and find God's blessing there. But we also don't invest ultimate significance in those things either. Yeah. But that, so that leads us into the kind of general premise of how, what does discipleship look like? But uh, in Mark 8 and then in 9 and 10, we have this even a further call towards this devotion to Christ as part of the kingdom. And in this, we're going to see even more how this w cruciformity, this idea that we live out the cruciform life and following Christ and his crucifixion. And so in, in Mark 8, uh, it's the famous passage. Jesus talks about his um, forecoming death. As the says the son of Jesus eight thirty one it says Jesus began to teach them that the son of man, uh, which if you go look up at Daniel seven the son yeah. of man is another um, king title, uh, it's all set within the idea that God is going to establish His kingdom on earth. So yep. uh, again, a kingdom issue here. But the son of man would suffer these things and die. Um, oops. Actually, I got ahead of myself. So the, the question yeah. before this, actually, why does he use the kingdom son of man language there? It's because he's he has just had this interchange with Peter and the disciples about his identity as the king. 
he goes up to Caesarea Philippi and he says, who do people say that I am? And they give him prophet answers. And of course he is a prophet. He's doing lots of things. You know, he, he sets out his vocation using prophetic language from Isaiah 61 that we prophesize that the temple will be destroyed. Yeah, like he's absolutely a prophet. Calls people to repentance. Yep. All that kind of stuff. Uh, but he turns and he asks Peter and the rest of the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You were the Messiah, the anointed one, the, yeah. the Davidic ruler who's going to come and lead as king. And so Jesus is going to say, yes, but you probably have false expectations about what a Davidic king is going to look like. And he says, yeah. but the son of man, so this, this king figure is going to come and he's going to die. And only after that to be raised from the dead. And Peter, right, doesn't, shows that he doesn't think that's the right, you know, vision of what a king looks like. And so he rebukes Jesus. <laughs> right. And that, that's, we're Peter. Like, I think we miss that in the gospel narrative. Yeah, like, if yeah. there were ever a person we could point to that's like, how would we respond if we were there? It's probably Peter. Well, and, 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 even if we wouldn't verbalize it, you just look at, so the, the demands that Jesus puts in our life and he's about to explain discipleship here, the fact that we basically ignore those commands pretty regularly oh, be, yeah. means that we're living out that rebuke of Jesus. <laughs> you know, we're giving our middle finger to Jesus right. <laughs> yeah. uh, rather than submitting to him. And it shows yeah. that what Peter thinks, articulates verbally is what we articulate with our lifestyle. And yeah. so, it, and myself as well. I mean, it's this whole thing. Um, is, the whole idea here is that Peter just gets what discipleship is, you know, totally wrong. Yeah. Well, I think there's, there's a progression here. You know, the, the kind of end all here is that the son of man will be killed, but there's a progression that Jesus goes through that he'll suffer many things and he'll be rejected and he'll be killed. Um, and you know, it's pretty easy for us to, you know, spiritualize this, Oh, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow me kind of thing. But when you truly talk about suffering and rejection, those are a little bit more close to home. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's really easy to go to the, the extreme to death and go, well, Jesus is not actually asking me to die, Yeah, but maybe Jesus is asking for suffer, sacrifice, yeah. rejection, things that are a bit harder for us to hear and actually live according to. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, and that the interesting thing here is Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Right. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> these, these human concerns are not the concerns of God. And so it, we're back to our kingdom issue from Matthew 12 is where we were looking at it before, but the kingdom of God is always a fight against the kingdom of Satan. And yeah. so it doesn't look like a demonic thing here. I mean, there's no demon possessed person. Or right, there's something. no exorcisms being performed. Yeah, it, but this is still a, a kingdom battle to right. live according to these, these values. And so the whole idea, what happens here then is that Jesus calls Peter. And, and like you said, whoever wants to be my disciple, he says, and uh, you know, disciple is a good religious term, right? Nobody uses that term anymore. I, I think apprentice is probably the best, uh, translation for our time period, somebody that's following the pattern of somebody else to uh, become and do what they're doing. That's being trained for um, something, a job title, yeah. like a, a, a role, uh, something to go out and do. 
And so, you know, for me, like we talked about earlier with like the Luke passages, those who are disciples do the thing just Jesus did. They proclaim the kingdom and they pray for people to see transformation. And so if you want to be my apprentice. Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, that I just want to make here. We, We really try to value and go above and beyond to uh, make space for women at the table at Wellhouse. Okay. Um, and in the Mary and Martha story, um, Martha gets upset because she's out doing and doing and doing, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the place of a disciple. That's where a disciple would have sat to learn the trade of the master. Yeah, yeah. Jesus made space for women to be disciples, to learn the trade with the expectation that they would go and do enacting the things of the kingdom of God. I'm there with you. I think that's right. So that's uh, for, for Peter here though, he's uh, calls him out and he says, look, I'm going to suffer and die as the Messiah. Right. And so if you're going to be my people, my apprentices, my disciples, you're going to have to follow that pattern as well. And so whoever wants to be my apprentice must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel, right? What is the gospel? the good news of the kingdom Kingdom of God. Whoever loses their life for the kingdom will save it. And so it's this whole um, focus here that to be kingdom is not just about victory, about life, prosperity, gospel, everything's going to be great and rosy. Actually, the whole idea is like God will sustain you. He'll undo the effects of sin uh, at times through the work of the spirit. But actually as you're in this battle, there are going to be casualties to that battle in that sense that we're going to be harmed in that war against sin mm-hmm. and, and satanic, satanic evil. And just briefly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but th- this actually, uh, Peter didn't get this idea quickly, nor the rest of the disciples. And so in chapter nine, we see the exact same thing again that the disciples are, uh, he predicts his death the second time. He says, hey, uh, I'm going to suffer and um, die, be put to death, and then be raised again. And when they were uh, out on the road, they were, he says they were having a, the disciples were having an argument about who was going to be the greatest, right? Right, right. <laughs> and so this sense of seeking to be great is exactly the same kind of misunderstanding that Peter had about what is a good leader right? Good leaders don't die. They don't suffer. Right. They're great. And so, they're conquerors. I mean, think, yeah. yeah, they, they conquer. Yeah. And so this whole idea of that we rule over other people, right. Rather than suffering and dying for them. And so Jesus, again, just like he calls Peter out he, before he was like, look, you fundamentally misunderstand what the kingdom is about. Right. If the, if the King, if the Messiah is to be suffering, his people are to be suffering. So he says, look, I'm going to die again. They're arguing about who's going to be greatest. And then he takes the child among them and says, you know, whoever wants to be first has to be last and become like a child, right? You have to be willing to sacrifice and serve other people. When I think that's, that's a really good point uh, about becoming like a child, because we, we miss this in, in American culture because to a large extent, we do everything for our kids. 
But in an ancient world, an ancient culture, if you couldn't bring an income, you were not valuable. Yeah. Uh, kids are not valuable. That's why when Jesus, we have that story in the gospels where Jesus says, let them come to me. Right. The disciples are like these nuisance kids get out of here. Yeah. But Jesus is like, uh, uh-uh. let them come to me. That's very valuable. Like that, that's a monumental moment because Jesus is saying at large, even the insignificant is valuable in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give you a quick example about this. When, you know, the U S invaded Afghanistan 15, 20 years ago. Um, and one of the things there, so we start to learn more about the Afghani culture and stuff. And so the drug Lords would give, uh, some of the farmers there opium seeds, right. To, Mm -hmm. to to grow poppies, I guess. And then they would make, uh, sorry, poppy seeds. And then they'd, Make opium. opium heroin out of it. Well, so the Afghan government would go through and destroy these crops. And so, but then the drug people wanted their money back, right? They'd made this investment. They wanted the return on investment. And so one of this whole story was about parents there who would sell their children to the drug lords because they, in, in that culture, it was much more like an ancient culture that we see right. here that children, um, until they get old enough, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, become an economic um and so the the parent always has more value than as than the child than the child and so and their willingness to um you know and of course they weren't happy about it but they still showed the relative value of children and so i think right. it, it shows like what jesus is doing here was very much more countercultural than it is yeah. today and so it's that kind of same sense like when we read this it's speaking exactly against our values of accumulating wealth and power. Um, it's to be the one who might be insignificant, the one who's unseen, the one who, you know, doesn't have the visible role. And yet that's maybe the most important person. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's so interesting seeing interesting, um, because, you know, this is Pints of Perspective, so we like to have a lot of different perspectives and voices coming in here um, and different traditions. And something that I love about the charismatic uh, movement is, and I consider myself to be a charismatic to some degree. Um, I don't, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm riding on top of the car hanging on as the charismatic train is going by, <laughs> uh, rather than being in with my seatbelt on or, or in the driver's seat going hundred miles an hour. I'm not sure, but you know, Mark Batterson is an AG pastor. He pastors, um, national community church in Washington, DC. And Something that he, so he's the author of The Circle Maker, Grave Robber. You know, he's a very prominent um, pastor, author, speaker. And one of the things that he says in The Circle Maker, which is one of his dreams and and goals and prayers in life, is to invert the tithing system. Okay. So rather than live on 90% and give 10, to live on 10 and give 90. Mm-hmm. That truly embodies what we're talking about here and yeah. suffering for the betterment of others and, and the enacting of the will of the kingdom of God is this idea that it's not, uh, it's not the American dream. It's not all about you. Yeah. It's about society. It's about the work of the kingdom. It's about uh, people made in the image of God receiving restoration in the name of God. Yeah. Um, it's about something that's bigger and more holistic 
than just an individualistic outlook on life. And, you know, we look at things like, um, you know, five, 10 years ago when the tiny house movement was coming on or, or minimalism was mm. becoming a yep. thing, uh, we would look at that and go, oh, it's stupid. They, they're just really trying to save money. Right, they're not actually trying to accomplish anything. Yeah, yeah. But now we see more and more people because of the freedom that they've experienced mm. in being able to invest in causes that they value. Yep. We see more and more people embracing a minimalistic lifestyle, mm. and and this is what Jesus is talking about. This this idea yeah. of suffering yeah, yeah. Yeah. is not necessarily you undergoing harsh persecution. It could be that, or it could just be this idea of sacrificing for the greater good. Yeah. No, I th- think that's the whole thing. It's like it, you're losing your life, but you're also gaining it, right? And that's the whole idea of, uh, you know, and they're kind of more spiritual and less spiritual forms of minimalism. But I think it's the, you know, the Dave Ramsey principle. If you're not in debt, then you're not en- enslaved, you know? Yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the debtor is always slave to the lender. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that, you know... Th- I'll just mention uh, um, Mark chapter 10 here as well. It repeats the exact same pattern. Jesus predicts his death. This is what the messianic, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, And yet James and John come and ask, Hey, can we sit at your right and left hand when you come in your kingdom? Right. Can I be the secretary of state and, you know, the vice president here, right? Vice president, secretary of state, speaker of the house. Yeah. Running. We want to run the show with you. Yeah. It's like you fundamentally misunderstand what running the show. looks. Yeah. Yeah. Like the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is what the kingdom looks like. It's if you have these gifts, and the empowerment of the spirit, it's not for yourself. It's for the sake of the community. And this yeah. is the whole basis of first Corinthians 12 to 14. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts, you don't have spiritual gifts. You're not a teacher for yourself. You're a teacher so that you can teach others. others yeah. <laughs> you don't know. You don't have the gift of mercy so that you will feel mercy. It's so that you can give that mercy to others. And so yeah. if you're in the kingdom, if you've been given these, tasks and roles it's not for you to accumulate it's not for you to do this it's to have an open hand and share Mm -hmm. those things with everyone around you so that they can more fully experience the life and blessing of god and that might mean even to the point of death right sacrifice we we often don't lay that before people but there's this challenge i mean it's the you know martin luther king when he had his i have a dream speech i mean it, it that uh, when he lays out that challenge, people didn't think, okay, we're just going to, you know, go to the park and have these playtimes with our kids together. Right. It's like, no, I've, I've got to go down there and I've got to walk across a bridge and know that I'm going to be beat up or yeah. maybe even killed by the police in order to achieve that flourishing for the sake of other people. And yeah. so that great dream we have of the kingdom is so that we would have that vision of like, what does real life and flourishing look like when God runs things? Well, it's, it's utopian, right? But at the same time, it's not a utopia that uh, happens on its own. It's through the death and resurrection of not only Christ, but also his people. And so this is yeah. why in Mark, you know, where do we see Jesus, right? The culmination of all this is Jesus achieving the kingdom through his own death and resurrection, yeah. right? And the the guard there at the 
crucifixion, he says, surely this is the son of God, right? And so there's this, again, we're back to the kind of the double entendre there of, is this God incarnate or is this the messianic ruler right. that we had always, you know, that we might, we wouldn't have seen unless he had done this. And so that's how he defeats evil. And, and so this is the whole thing of investing in politics. I, I, I vote, I don't have any, you know, I think that's a part of being a, a good citizen, but at the same time, it's investing our values, our lives to where we're going to, unfriend people and we're going to fight and have like this vitriol. What that means is we are invested in those power structures and we're not, we're not invested in sacrificing for the people yeah. that are different than us. We're invested in having power over them so that they would agree with us and dominate yeah. them. And it, it's exactly the opposite of what the kingdom of God is about. Yeah. Gene stairs has a book um, about pastoral care and in there, she makes an argument that death and resurrection are not embodied in the person of Jesus, but they're patterns of life. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really helpful for this. In dying to ourselves, we're not just dying to ourselves for the sake of dying to ourselves. We're dying to ourselves for the sake of resurrection for another. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, it really is that open hand kind of mentality that that you embodying suffering and servitude is more about what that accomplishes for another. It's not the denial of pleasure, right? It's not It's not that element that just denial for the sake of denial. It's denial for the flourishing of another. And in the flourishing of another, you yourself flourish in the experience of the kingdom of God in a more robust and holistic way. Yeah, yeah. And in a short way to talk about that we look at second corinthians chapter three and four where you have kind of the same dynamic that we've talked about chapter three is all about the life and the spirit right Right. that's what we've talked about the spirit shows up things live (laughs) and yet in chapter four paul talks about hey if you what do you do with that life you give that up for the sake of others and so he says even though we're persecuted even though we're uh, pursued and all that we don't give up because this death at work in us means life for you yeah it's the exact language that you're talking about there and so um it's a you know it's a tension right it's a tension between flourishing and kind of a, a a prosperity gospel i think we undersell the prosperity that comes from being a christian the freedom in christ and the freedom of you know, I mean, there's a freedom of not being in debt, you know, if you follow that model, like that, there's true blessing in that. And yet that by itself, uh, not being in debt doesn't mean that hurricanes still don't come and blow down your house. You know, right. I mean, there's still evil in the world. And so you might be free of some struggles, but that opens the door to your participation in other people's as well. Yeah. I think that that's an important piece is that the kingdom of God is a realization here and now during this present evil age, which will come to a final culmination. But in that time, while we're awaiting and looking forward to the final culmination, there must be an element of servitude and suffering for the betterment of those made in the image of God. And, and what that means is, uh, there's a company called the happy givers. They're a nonprofit that make t-shirts and different things, uh, um, that do justice work in South America. Okay. And they have this statement and I think about it all the time. 
It says, if you are more privileged than others, don't build a taller fence, build a longer table. It is the idea that those who are in a status of privilege um, sacrifice for the betterment of those who are underserved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, I I can't say anything better than that. Yeah. I'll I'll leave it there. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, thanks for, thanks for being here again. I'm looking forward to uh, the future episodes that we have. Sounds good.